0: Good morning. It's wonderful to be here with you this weekend and to open up God's word again. I appreciate those words that came before I had on my heart this from Psalm 68, verse 5 and 6. A father of the fatherless and a judge of the widow's. Is God in his holy habitation? God setteth the solitary in families. He bringeth out those which are bound with chains, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. Today, as we continue in the stories from the book of Ruth, I want to focus on the uh, namesake of the book, Ruth, and look at her example to us and what God teaches us from her life. And we'll see at least three things from Ruth's example. We see an example of what it really means to be a friend. And that can be a lesson to us about being a friend, what friendship is, from her example. We also see from her an example of a godly character in her, a great example to the women in the congregation to look at the example of a godly character of this woman, and we'll see different examples to us, and an example to all of us, because her characteristics and qualities that are on display really show us uh, the, the great blessings that come from that, and the reward and blessings that came into her life through what God blessed her with. And uh, most of all, we see in this, we see the goodness of God. We see the goodness of God on such abundant display in what happened to Naomi and to Ruth. Uh, Yesterday, last night, as we saw the story of Elimelech and Naomi and, and their sons and what happened to them, we see the tragedy and the sorrow and how they were laid low, how Naomi was brought to a very sorrowful, difficult, hard place. And when you're in that kind of place, when you're in the lowest of the low, one thing you need, one thing you you need so much is you need a friend. You need a friend to be there. And as destitute as Naomi was, she was blessed. She was blessed in that she was not left to face everything that she faced alone. But she had a friend. And as we pointed out, the name Ruth, it means friend, it means companion. And she had someone to be there with her and for her and to go through, to walk that road of sorrow side by side with her. And that's a great example to us of friendship. One of the first things about being a friend to someone is to be there for them. And that's especially important to remember when you see a friend going through deep and difficult sorrow. I don't know about you, but I know for me, uh, I am the way I think, I'm a problem solver. I want to fix things. If I see something that's not right, I want to try to come up with a solution to it. And that's kind of one of the driving characteristics of my, of my personality. And I know others of you are like that too. You see something wrong, you want to solve it. And that can be good. That can be a great quality applied in the right ways. But here's what I see happen sometimes when you see someone in sorrow, when you see someone going through difficulty. It can be difficult to see, it can be hard to observe, and it can be hard to bear yourself. Because walking through sorrow with someone means taking some of that upon yourself and going through it with them. And, and we sometimes want to fix other people's sorrows and difficulties because we don't want to deal with it ourselves. We would like them to just be better and be happy so that we can get on with, with being better and happy ourselves and not deal with that sorrow. But sometimes there is nothing you can do to fix the sorrow that people are going through in your life. And that can be when it's hardest, but when it's most important to be a friend. That that was what it was like for Ruth here with Naomi in this time. She couldn't do anything to undo the harm that Naomi had endured. The bitterness and affliction that Naomi was going through, Ruth was, in a sense, powerless to undo that or to fix it. But through God's grace, her friendship, her commitment, and her loyalty to Naomi, ultimately through that, God was able to use her to bless Naomi and to restore Naomi and to provide Naomi with an abundance. And so that is what we can do too as friends. Uh, the the exhortation that Brother Nathan was bringing about looking for the Ruths and Naomis in our lives. See, he who would have friends, it says, must show himself friendly. And so if you if you want to think about and, and meditate on and consider the importance of friendship, you can look within your own heart and see that it's about seeking to be a friend, to be a friend. And to be a friend is to find those that are in need of a friend at that time. Like Jesus said about being what it's like being a neighbor. When his disciples asked him, when the people... I asked him, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Who do I have to love? Who do I have to be kind to? And he flips that on its head by telling them a story and then giving three examples of three men that passed by the man that was beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. And he says, who was a neighbor to him? And that's what it's like being a friend. Being a friend is about what, what we do, and what we are to those around us. And all Ruth could do for Naomi was to be there for her and to be there with her. But that was the most powerful and important thing that she could do. And that's what we see, one of the things we see in her example. Now, I left off last night with saying that they came into Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. And God had visited his people To give them bread. So we're in Ruth, uh, we're going to be in Ruth chapter 2, but I want to take a little divergence as part of this introduction to this message. In Leviticus chapter 23, so this is going back into the Old Testament law that God gave to his people, and this whole chapter of Leviticus chapter 23 is describing the feasts of the Lord that God ordained for his people, and he ordained these feasts for his people to give them rest throughout the year that they would have times of rest such such a need for us in the midst of our labors in this life and the the things that we endure that we have seasons of rest and he gave them as an opportunity to commemorate to remember the the mighty works of God that God had done for them, like for example, the Passover feast was a yearly remembrance of how God by a mighty hand delivered his people out of Egypt from bondage in Egypt and would ultimately bring them out by a miraculous and mighty power. And they could remember this every single year. And they would have the Passover feast and they would send the unleavened all the leavened uh, bread out of their house. And when their children would ask, mom and dad, why are we doing all these things? Why are we eating this lamb? Why do we get rid of the leaven? They could tell them year after year the story of the time that God saved them from their bondage in Egypt and and brought them into the promised land by a mighty hand. So important. And uh, so through those things, and, and it was also an opportunity for them to delight and rejoice in the Lord, in the abundance of his blessings, these feasts were centered around the harvest times of the year. And in our day and age, many of us, most of us, are a few degrees removed from the land and where our food comes from. Some of you may uh, be farmers or you may be closer to it than perhaps most of us are. But uh, I know for us, when we need food, most of the time, We go to the grocery store and we buy it and we bring it home. We put it in our refrigerator or cupboards and we have food. And that's where food comes from. Except that's not where food comes from. (laughs) Food comes from the earth as God gives the increase and causes it to come up. And that is just as true today as it was 3,000 years ago when they lived closer to the land and they lived off the land. We have more technology, we have uh, so many things that make our lives easier today, but don't forget, you still depend every day for the food that you eat, you depend on God to give the increase from the earth so that the vegetables, the fruits, the grains, the animals, all the things that make up the food that you're eating, they are grown out of the ground as God blesses it, as he blesses rain to come down from heaven to water the earth. He causes the, uh, the trees and the plants and the vines to grow up from the earth, and he causes that fruit to, to bear and to give increase. It's such a great reminder of the power of God and our utter dependence on God. They sometimes saw it more closely because God stopped giving the increase for a season, and a famine came on the land, and they had nothing to eat. And they, they, they would pray. and They would look to heaven for God to bless and to visit and to send that food down to them. And it was a daily reminder of their utter dependence upon God. In Deuteronomy, as God is uh, exhorting them about how he gave during the, the time of the uh, wandering in the wilderness, God gave them bread from heaven, manna. And they had to depend every day that they would go out and they would see that manna on the ground that God would give. And it, and it says that God made them to hunger in the wilderness. God made them to hunger. You know, they, they did not always feel so full, like they had more than enough to eat all the time. They hungered at times. And he did so, so that they would know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we live by God's word. And as much as we need God to pour out his rain upon the earth, to cause the earth to come up and to bear fruit so that we can have food to eat, to fill our bellies and have strength in our bodies, we need even more that God would spiritually nourish us day after day, that we would have enough to be sustained in our souls by the word of God and by the spirit of God at work in our lives, in our churches, in our families so that he would give the increase. And, and the apostles and the prophets, they often used analogies and, and examples that came from the earth. I think of the apostle Paul, when he preaches about, when he's teaching about the gospel and the, and the work of preaching the gospel and ministering to the churches, he uses himself as an example. He says, I planted. He uses Apollos, the preacher Apollos, as an example. Apollos watered. You know, they're they're laboring in the harvest of the Lord, language that Jesus also used. The fields are white unto harvest. He said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And he used that example. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. And he understood, like, just like with the land, when the farmer goes out and he plants the seeds and he waters the seeds and he fertilizes, and he does all of his labor, yet... He is utterly dependent on the power of God to give the increase of that crop. And we are utterly dependent on the power of God to make the the work of the laborers in the Lord's harvest fruitful to cause the increase to come forth by the power of God. And we need to be sustained by God's blessings. So these feasts were, these festivals and feasts were centered around God's harvest. But Uh, One of the reasons I brought us here is that in the midst of God describing these feasts, he has this commandment and instruction for the people of Israel in verse 22 of Leviticus 23. And when ye reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not make clean riddance of the corners of thy field when thou reapest, neither shalt thou gather any gleaning of thy harvest, Thou shalt leave them unto the poor and to the stranger. I am the Lord your God. There is such significance and revelation of the character of God. What is God like? How he thinks? What his being and character are is revealed in this. In fact, he ties this commandment to his very identity. I am the Lord your God, he says. And so therefore do this do this, when you reap your harvest. Now, when they were to go out and they were to grab up their crops, they were to go through their fields and harvest their fields. But anything that was left after they went through the first time, anything that was in the corners that wouldn't have been gotten by the normal path of their, of their plows and their workers, they were to leave them. They were to leave them behind. Now, this was not the most profitable or the most efficient way to harvest but it was the way that was in line with God's goodness and his character because God is and was concerned with the poor and the needy with the stranger dwelling in the land God called the nation of Israel and he made them a special nation a peculiar people. He made them, he set them apart from all the nations of the earth and he gave them his law. But God did not do this because he only had a love for that one nation of people. In fact, it was for his love for his people from every kindred, tribe, and tongue and nation. It was for that purpose that he called Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the people of Israel. And set them apart. He set them apart that they would be a kingdom of priests to the nations of the world. That they would be a blessing and an example. That they would minister God's blessings to all the nations of the world. When other nations, when people from other kingdoms, when they looked at the nation of Israel and they saw how the laws were conducted there and and they saw how they treated the poor and the needy and the widows and the destitute and when they saw the justice that was in their law, they would behold what it is like for a nation to have the Lord as its God. And it would be a light that would shine and be a blessing. And God, when he called Abraham, he said, he said, through thy seed, all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God showed his in the old covenant even though God's focus and and his blessings are centered in the nation of Israel God was revealing even back then that his purpose and his plan was for his salvation to go out to all the ends of the earth and to bless to bless them through that and he shows here this care so the stranger a Moabite an Egyptian a foreigner from a, from a distant land dwelling in the land of Israel, God cared about them. God made a provision in his law that they wouldn't go hungry, that they wouldn't be destitute, that they wouldn't have to be ashamed. They wouldn't even have to go and beg on the side of the street corner. They could go out and they could lawfully labor for their food in the fields of the landowners in the land of Israel. This was a great provision that God made by His goodness and His blessing, and it's going to come. Uh, it's it's going to come up here in the book of Ruth as Ruth and Naomi come back in, and Naomi, in particular, comes in as a stranger into the land of Israel. She's a Moabite, a Moabitess. So one of the first things that we're told about Ruth and to consider about Ruth is that Ruth was a Moabitess. She was descended from Moab and Moab was one of the sons of Lot. And the origin of Moab is described in the book of Genesis. And uh, in the book of Genesis, it describes where Moab come from. And Moab and his brother uh, Ben-Ami, who uh, formed the Moabites and the Ammonites, they were kind of like distant cousins of the Israelites Uh, but they came from a shameful beginning that's described in the book of Genesis that I won't go into here and now but it it was a shameful past and it was a shameful origin that was not only known to the people but it was recorded in the books of the Bible for a perpetual reminder of where they came from. And not only that, but then later on as um, Israel began to grow into a nation and they were wandering through the wilderness, the Moabites ended up opposing and becoming the enemies of the people of Israel. They treated them cruelly. The Moabites' kings tried to destroy the people of Israel at different times. So Moab was not just another land, but they were the enemies of the people of Israel. So as Ruth comes into the land of Israel, she comes in as a stranger from a strange land, from a a nation that was in a state of animosity and enmity with the people of Israel. And this is how she comes in. But she does so willingly, as we saw. She does so willingly for the sake of Naomi, because she is a a true friend and companion to her, to her mother-in-law. And she does so for the sake of the God of the people of Israel, who, is, uh, who are now her people and her God. And so we see the, the goodness of God in taking this young woman and grafting her in and making her part of the family of God, even though she was a stranger and a foreigner. That could be an example to you, to us today, when we think about how God in his mercy took us from whatever our background was, from wherever we were, Whatever it was, whatever kind of state, whether we grew up in the church or outside of the church, the one thing I know about every one of us here is that we were sinners, we are sinners unworthy of the goodness and the mercy of God in need of his merciful hand to draw us in and make us part of the family of God. Well, they come in at the beginning of the harvest, and then chapter two begins in this way. It says, and Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth, of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. And we'll talk more about Boaz and the kinsman tomorrow. It says he's a uh, uh, a mighty, he's a kinsman, uh, so he's a close relative. He's a close relative. He's one of the closest relatives of Elimelech's. Remember, Elimelech was Naomi's husband who had died. Boaz is a near kinsman. Um, And he is a mighty man of wealth. Uh, and, And he's of the family, and his name was Boaz. And it goes on, it describes this. And Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him, in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, Go, my daughter. And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reaper's. And her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was the kindred of Elimelech. So we've already seen a few things about Ruth's character that can be a great example to us today. Uh, First of all, we see the loyalty that Ruth had in her devotion to Naomi. And, And loyalty and friendship are best revealed when they are put to the test. I was thinking about there's a country song you find out who your friends are and it's true when you're when you go into a difficult time that's when you really find out who your friends are when everything's stacked against you when things aren't going well um, and and some people might forsake you turn aside from you this happened to the Apostle Paul you know he had when when, when things were going well for him when he was a, a popular speaker and and rabbi and and everything was going great. He had all kinds of, of friends, but when he got thrown in prison and things were difficult, all kinds of people forsook him. But there were some that stood steadfast by him. You find out when things are difficult, who your, who your friends are. Uh, you, you, you do. and and that's, and that's what we see in, in Ruth. She had a loyalty and a commitment, um, just a reminder of her of her words that she said. Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. Now Naomi had, had twice, she had exhorted these daughters-in-law to go, go back to your people. And Ruth says, stop, say no more, stop trying to convince me to go away, I'm not going to leave you. She says, for whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where you live, I'm going to live. Where you go, I'm going to go. Your people are my people. My God is your God. There was a story I remember reading about a couple years ago now. And it took place over, I think in uh, in the Middle East or, or Northeast Africa somewhere. And I think there was about 30 Christian, Egyptian men. And... Um, Terrorists had taken them captive and 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 it was videotaped, and they one by one were going through and they were beheading these men, putting them to death in a brutal, gruesome, wicked way they were they were killing men because they were christians and and among these Christians, there was this man and he was from a, he was he was an Egyptian, I forget where he was from he was from another nation, but he also uh he, he He previously had not been a Christian, but he'd been working with these Egyptian Christians. His name, I think, was Michael. And he had been working with them for a while. And they were going through, and he was right along with all of them. He was set beside them, kneeling there, getting ready to be executed for their faith. And they were going by, one by one, asking them, would they denounce Jesus Christ? And when they would not, they were put to death. And they come to Michael, and they say, Are you, are you going to denounce, will you denounce Jesus Christ? And he looks around, and he looks at these other, these, these Egyptian Christians, and he says, Their God is my God. That's the kind of dedication and loyalty that Ruth had. She says, Your God, Naomi, is my God. I'm with you. I'm going to go with you, and when you die, I'm going to die there with you. When you're buried, I'm going to be buried where you're buried. I'm going to be in the same heap of ground where you are. I'm going to be right by your side till the very end. She knew who her people were. She knew who she was going to stick by, and she did so. And so we see her loyalty, and then we see, as we come to chapter two, we see her diligence. We see that she's, she's a she's wanting to 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 work to put in her effort in order to help herself and those that she loves and that she cares about this is her this is her her ethic that she has she's she's going to go and she's going to do what it takes to work and like i said that there was provision in god's law for this to be able to be done by a stranger and a foreigner without shame without them being having to be uh Humiliated or ashamed, they were able to go and to be provided for, also they were able to be provided for by the labor of their own hands it wasn't just a, it wasn't just that they would um, that they would just be taken care of and they didn't have to do anything. They were given the opportunity to be provided for in uh, what is what is most of the time the best possible way when someone can have the dignity of being able to work for themselves if they're able to. And that's what she was able to do. And so how uh, she is. And then it says, it was her hap to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz. I said that we would see in the book of Ruth, we see the sovereignty of God at work. It was her hap. It just, it's, it's almost written like, and it just happened that that was the part of the field where she was working. And that's often how how it seems to us in life. Sometimes the, uh, sometimes things they don't seem very significant um, at the time, but those things that just happen in a certain way happen at times to bring about God's purpose for our life. God has a plan for our lives that He's working, and it's and it's all kinds of different threads weaving together to bring about God's perfect. Plan in our lives, and, and at the time we often we often don't know. I think about the the day that I met my wife, and and how uh, there were several things that God orchestrated together so that we would be at the same place and the same time. We were at a meeting. Um, it was a a student senate budget meeting at our school that we. Uh, both happened to be at at the same time. It was our hap to be at that meeting, even though neither one of us were, the, were a representative of our club for that student budget meeting. We both ended up uh, filling in for a friend who wasn't able to be there on that particular day, and that brought us together, and we met, and it changed the course of the rest of our lives. And so it was with Ruth here that she happened to be in the field of Boaz, and she's gleaning. It says, she gleaned in the field after the reapers. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said unto the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered him, the Lord bless thee. Then said Boaz unto his servant what, that was set over the reapers, whose damsel is this? Well, he, one of the first things we notice as Boaz comes is he notices Ruth. He takes note of her. Who is this? Whose damsel is this he wants to know? And he begins to inquire. Uh, and they and they tell her about him. It is the Moabitish damsel that came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. So here they're describing to her. Word has gotten around town a little bit about who this is. It's this Moabitish woman. She's a stranger. She came back with Naomi, and Boaz has his eye on her. And he begins to look out for, and we'll see more about that tomorrow, but let's continue and see uh, the character of Ruth as it unfolds. And she said, I pray you, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and hath continued even from the morning until now that she tarried a little in the house. Then said Boaz unto Ruth, "Hearest thou not my daughter? Go not to glean in another field, neither go from hence, but abide here fast by my maidens. Let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and go thou after them. Have I not charged the young men that they should not touch thee? And when thou art athirst, go unto the vessels and drink of that which the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground and said unto him, Why have I found grace in thine eyes that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger? So we see another thing about the character of Ruth. We see, we see that she is humble. She's so humble here. She sees herself as a stranger. She sees herself at, as someone who is dependent upon the kindness of those around her. She's dependent upon the kindness of God and then the kindness of God mediated through the kindness of Boaz and others around her. She falls notice she fell on her face. This was, in that culture, this was a way of showing humility and respect and reverence. She fell on her face. She bowed down. She, she was uh, showing humility. that She didn't deserve even to, to look at him eye to eye. And she falls on her face. That's how she feels about herself. Um, and it says that uh, we are called in the church to esteem others Better than ourselves. To look not each man on his own things, but every man on the things of others. How often do we, by our sinful nature, we get it backwards. We want to lift ourselves up so that we can uh, be a little higher than others. That's the flesh. But in humility, she lowers herself down. She does, even though she is a, uh, as we see, as we can see now, she is a great woman. She is a wonderful person. And yet, as she looked at herself, she was humble. Humble before God and humble before others. So she fell on her face, she bowed herself to the ground, and she said, why have I found grace in thine eyes? She saw herself as needing the favor, the kindness, the grace of this mighty man of wealth. And that's a lesson to us, too, of, of how we deal with others, but especially how we relate to God and to his kindness to us. Uh, and Each one of you who have experienced the grace and the mercy of God, who have come to experience the forgiveness of Jesus Christ for your sins, his blood applied to your case so that you, you are purged from your sins, you could you could bow yourself before god and and ask the same thing we could we could say the same thing god why have i found grace in thy sight and there's and and we don't deserve it but god has been gracious to us he has shown us favor even as boaz here showed kindness and grace to ruth and took note of her took notice of her that thou shouldest take knowledge of me seeing I am a stranger. That was was for her the source of her feeling of unworthiness was that she was a stranger. Uh, She wasn't entitled to a a place in the land of Israel. She didn't have some kind of claim or, uh, or, or right to be there. She was a stranger. She was sojourning in that land. And she says, why, why shouldest thou take knowledge of me? But Boaz did take knowledge of her. In fact, she was a delight in his eyes. Like the church is to Christ. He takes knowledge of us. And we look at ourselves and according to our state and where we come from. See, we come from, we come from a bad land. The land of sin and bondage to sin. And that's where we come from. That's where our origin is. So why should he take knowledge of us? But he does. And he, he delights in his church. And, he, and we find grace in his sight. And so we see her humility, her, her great humility. And Boaz answered, and then we see this, and said unto her, It hath been fully shown me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband and how thou hast left thy father and thy mother and the land of thy nativity, and art come unto a people which thou knewest not heretofore, the Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. This is, this is powerful. She had come to trust under the wings of the Lord. She had come to, be, to come under his protection and his care, And Boaz pronounces a blessing upon her that God, the God who you have come to trust in, he's not going to let you down. He's not going to let you down. He's going to provide for you, to care for you, to bless you. He's going to reward you for every service that you have given to him and to his people. Think about what Jesus said when said, uh, when he said that he sees even when you give a cup of water, to the servant of Jesus Christ in His name, He sees that, and and you will not lose your reward. There is there is great reward in this in serving the Lord. God rewards uh, obedience, and in His grace and His providence, He does so, and 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 He does so out of His great and abundant goodness. Not because it's somehow deserved by us, but because it's the goodness and the mercy of God to bless us with, a, with an abounding abundance. And God sees. And this is, this is so important to remember. God sees. Jesus said about giving of alms and about prayers and about other things, things that you do. Think about the things that you do in the service to God and the service to others. Maybe it's those fulfillment, how you seek in your life to fulfill the commandment that brother Nathan brought up before, to visit the fatherless and the widow in their affliction, to keep yourself unspotted from the world. As you do those things, Jesus has taught us to, um, to, as much as possible, to um, to do them not for the praise of men, but to do them to the glory of God. To do them as much as possible in, in secret. And that that which is done in secret, God will reward you openly. And, and so, the Lord sees. He says, Jesus says this, the Lord seeth in secret. When you go off by yourself and you pray to God, God sees those prayers. When you give to those in need, God sees that kindness. And God has taken knowledge of you, and he notices you. And that's what happened here with Ruth. Ruth had sacrificed a lot. She had thrown in her lot with someone who was suffering and afflicted, but God saw her case. God saw what she going through. God sees what you have done and what you're going through, and God will render his reward to you in due season. He sees. And one thing I, I, I see and know about God, I know it from his word, I know it by experience, is that, one, for God's people, God does not deal with us, uh, even when he punishes us or disciplines us, he does not deal with us as much as we deserve for our sins. God is, God is kinder to us and more merciful with us and more patient with us than our sins merit. And on the other hand, when God blesses us and rewards us for our obedience and our service to him, God's blessings to us are far beyond and above what we deserve for that. God blesses with an abounding abundance. And we see, we see her, her humility here. I, I'm reminded of James chapter 4, several different ways from the book of Ruth. In James chapter 4, James writes to a people that are dealing with strife, envy, fighting. And in the midst of that, in the midst of the the lusts and wars and fightings that that are among us, he exhorts his people, he exhorts his people to have a spirit and a way of life and action that is different from the world around us. Don't get caught up in the ways of this world. You know, it's so easy to get drawn into it when there's fighting and there's envy and there's bitterness and it's all around us. You know, I, you know, we all probably to some degree or other will watch the news or read the news on the internet or different things and, you know, it can be pretty depressing. But I, the other day, I pulled up a news site and it was just particularly depressing to me as I was reading through these headlines, because it was just like one after the other after the other was just bringing me down. And and that doesn't always affect me that much. I mean, we, we're exposed to things that are happening all throughout the world, so we kind of have to harden our hearts a little bit in our day and age. But it was just like, this is this is depressing. It's easy to get discouraged and to get caught up in all that. and And we would do well to spend more time in our Bibles than we do reading or looking at the news because it will get you down. But, but one thing you will see is there is strife and fighting and envy and bitterness everywhere, all around us. Don't get caught up in it. You're in the world, but don't be of the world. You don't have to be like the world. You, you, you are freed from that. By the power of Jesus Christ. Because God has, if you have come to know Jesus Christ and come to experience his forgiveness of your sins, it says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you have peace with God, then you can both be at peace and be a peacemaker in this world. You can have a peace that fills your soul because the enmity between you and god has been broken down that's that's part that's part of the reason there is so much strife and 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 envy and fighting in this world is that people aren't at peace with God so so we don't have to be part of that we can be part of the solution part of the answer because God has shown us the way of peace so live that way of peace and declare and proclaim that in your life be an example and a testimony of it And one of the ways that you do that is by humility. Now Ruth didn't walk into that field with with her head up in the air feeling like she was better than everyone else and is entitled to it. And I can't believe these these Israelites. She considered herself lower than even the servants of, of Boaz. She wasn't even like to them, she says, even though this was a an incredible, beautiful, wonderful woman of great character, she humbled herself. James says this, he says, but, verse 6, James chapter 4, but he giveth more grace. Wherefore, he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. I can tell you this, if you lift yourself up, if you exalt yourself, God will humble you. He will humble you. In his mercy, often he will humble you. But God will humble you one way or another. God resisteth the proud, but he giveth grace to the humble. If you humble yourself, God will lift you up. God will lift you up. Jesus said, many that are last shall be first, and the first shall be last. God has a way of reversing the natural uh, order of our human ways. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. That reminds me of what happened to Naomi. And that which happened to Ruth. And what Ruth willingly continued in. In her abiding and cleaving to Naomi. Their joy was turned to mourning. Their laughter to weeping. And to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. And he shall lift you up. Well, we... When we see the story of Ruth, we see a fulfillment of that very thing. We see someone who is humbled in the sight of the Lord, and God lifted her up. Let's fast forward a little bit, we'll go to, to chapter 3, and we'll see uh, one other thing here from the life of Ruth. And, and to get the rest of the story, we'll have to wait until tomorrow as we see Boaz and what unfolds with their relationship and the result of it. But let's see what what happens here in chapter 3. Briefly, Naomi after hearing about this, after hearing that Ruth ended up in the fields of Boaz, she just happened Naomi is delighted cuz Boaz is a near relative of Elimelech, the one who's dead. And She delights, she rejoices. Verse 20 of chapter 2, And Naomi said unto her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord who hath not left off his kindness to the living and to the dead. And Naomi said unto her, The man is a near kin unto us, one of our next kinsmen. That's going to become very important when we come to Boaz and what the significance of that near kinsman was. Now there's some Things that are cultural, things that are strange to us today, but this near kinsman had a very important role in order to stand and act in the place of he who is dead. And uh, but we'll just see part of it now, which was that Naomi comes up with a plan. She she comes up with a plan. Uh, some some of the mothers in Israel are good matchmakers. And God is the greatest matchmaker of all. So he puts things together. And Naomi here, she comes up with a plan, and she calls Ruth. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? So she, her concern is for the good of Ruth. Uh, that's, that's another great thing about friendship and about our relationships. If you can live your relationships looking after the good of your friends, your family, not just about what's going to be best for you and make you happy, and, but what's really for their good. Well, she wants good for Ruth. She doesn't want her to remain a widow her whole life. Uh, she'd like her to be married again, to find rest, to find peace. And that's what the origination of this plan comes from. And now is not Boaz of our kinsman, whose maidens thou was with whose maidens thou was? Behold, he winnoweth barley tonight in the threshing floor. Wash thyself therefore and anoint thee and put thy raiment upon thee and get thee down to the floor, but make not thyself known unto the man until he shall have done eating and drinking. And it shall be when he lieth down that thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie and thou shalt go in and uncover his feet and lay thee down and he will tell thee what thou shalt do. And she said unto her, all that thou sayest unto me, I will do. So she's going to go along with this plan. And to understand what this is, we have to understand a little bit about the symbolism that was in that culture. So she tells her, she says, put on your nice clothes, wash yourself, get smelling real good. And she says, and go. And wait, Boaz is going to be out working. You'll see, Boaz, he was a mighty man of wealth, but he wasn't above going out and working right along with the rest of them. So he's, he's, a, he's a man of great character as well. And and she says, go. And when he's done working, after he lies down, after he falls asleep, you, you sneak in and you're going to lie down and you're going to uncover his feet. And the uncovering of the feet, this was a symbolic act of what she's doing here. Well, let's, let's read on and I'll say a little bit more about it because this is what she does. She went down under the floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her, And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn. And she came softly and uncovered his feet and laid her down. And it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid and turned himself, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who art thou? And she answered, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. And he said, Blessed be thou, the Lord, my daughter, For thou hast shown more kindness to the latter end than at the beginning, inasmuch as thou followest not young men, whether poor or rich. What's going on here? Well, Ruth has essentially asked Boaz to marry her. That's what this symbolic act takes. She goes and she lays down. She uncovers his feet. Because in the uncovering of feet, remember that phrase, that she had come to trust under the shadow of God's wing, well, that's kind of like what the skirts here symbolize, the clothing. She says, spread your skirts over me. That is to bring her under his covering and his protection. She's saying, you're a near kinsman. You can marry me, take me under your protection and care and become my husband. And that's what, that's what she's signifying by this. And the uncovering the feet, was lifting up the skirts that covered the feet so that, she, so that he could spread his skirts over her. Of course, there's, this is a, a lot of symbolism here. There's nothing, she's not doing anything inappropriate. There's not anything uh, uncouth happening here. This is uh, her way of indicating to him to take on that right and obligation that he had to marry her and to bring her under his protection and his care. So she, she she sneaks in quietly, just like Naomi says. She uncovers his feet and she lies down at his feet. Of course, he's asleep during this whole time. And so when he wakes up, he wakes up and there's a woman lying at his feet. And I think probably any of us would, be, would feel about the same way as he felt in this moment. It says he was afraid. <laughs> he was scared. What's, what's going on? Why is there someone lying at her feet. And she would have been veiled. Uh, She came in with a veil, which he would later fill up with with, uh, barley to have her to bring home so she wouldn't come home empty-handed to her mother-in-law. So she would have been veiled. So he says, who are you? Who is this here? And that's when she says this. Take me, take, spread, she says, therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. One, another way of, Interpreting that phrase is, thou art one who has the right to redeem. Well, we we can look at our own state here and our own place of need. We're strangers. Strangers coming out of the land of sin and bondage to sin. And when we look to our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we see one who has the right to redeem. In fact, we see one who has, by the offering up of himself, he has, by his blood, redeemed his people unto God. So, so we, can, we can look to him and we could say, spread your skirts over us. Bring us under the shadow of your wing. Bring us under your protection and care, as she does here. And we could see in that the goodness and the mercy of God the, the great care and concern that he has for us. It says, and now, he says, and now, my daughter, fear not. I will do to thee all that thou requirest, for all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. And now it is true that I am thy near kinsman, howbeit there is a kinsman nearer than I. Um, it goes on, it says, she lay down to his feet till morning, and he says unto her in verse 15, bring the veil that thou hast upon thee and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her, and she went into the city. And when she came unto her mother-in-law, she said, Who art thou, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done unto her. And she said, These six measures of barley gave he me, for he said unto me, Go not empty unto thy mother-in-law. And we see how God, uh, in this example, is like an example of how the Lord Never sends his people away empty. When we come to him for his protection and his care and his provision, he doesn't send us away empty. But not only does he not send us away empty, but he sends us away with an overflowing abundance of his provision for us. And I pray that today and in the days ahead, he will do that very thing for you as you come to him and seek him for his blessings.